Blog Talk Radio. All right, now we're live with everybody. We're live with Facebook, we're live with the Live Radio Network. So, good evening, everybody, and I hope that you've had a good last couple of weeks. Uh, hasn't been too bad for us. Yeah, been busy. Been busy. We had five sold out tours this past weekend, which was awesome. Yep. And we've so, got sold out by COVID standards, yeah. meaning we're still at less, less than half capacity. But hey, and I had good. to add two tours. So that's awesome. But yeah, it was good. So yeah, we are yeah been busy. We've been doing pretty good here. And, yeah. And this time last year, we were on a boat with Donnie and several of our other friends in the paranormal community. Uh, we were on Castaway Cay. Yeah, that was yeah. yeah. I, I could so enjoy being on Castaway Cay. Lulu, do not chase it. We have some spicy cats tonight, <laughs> so one of us might have to excuse ourselves briefly to deal with spicy cats if they get too spicy. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, that was a paranormal convention, and when we came home from that, everything was shut down, and after about a week of me going crazy, uh, we started researching for our first one of these. Yeah, which was? Actually, it was Castle. It was Celtic yeah, yeah. Castle. Yes, that's right. So, yeah, we're uh, circling back. We're glad we got some more Irish tales for you because, of course, well, Ireland has no shortage of spooky stories in the paranormal. So we got lots to share with you. This will definitely not be the last Haunted Ireland episode that we do. No, I have plenty more. I had fun kind of trouncing around Ireland with this and uh, doing, you know, not just castles, but a lot of everything. Yeah, I had to cut a couple castles from the script, actually. She had a huge script that would have taken us over an hour and a half, and I don't think anybody was going to uh, stick with us quite that long, just, you know, no matter how engaging we were. Yeah, we learned a long time ago that an hour is more limited. Yeah, so we we still have uh, probably at least a good solid hour, hour 15 worth of stuff here to share with you all tonight. And uh, yeah, so we yeah. have uh, we have our beverages, of course. I got my Guinness. I have my hot toddy, my Irish hot toddy. And Jameson, of course. Because we're Irish. <laughs> cheers, everybody. Yes, cheers. Uh, so let's see. Shall we dive in? Are we all good, or do I have a quick question? Um, no yes, questions yet, but good evening, everybody. We got Patrick, Donna, Donnie, um, Steve, Alex. I'll check in with us here, so happy to have you all along, and uh, yeah, we'll go ahead and we'll dive into our first story for this evening. Okay, so we're going to start out in Northern Ireland this time uh, at the Ghost of Dunluce Castle. Hello, you know, say hello. <laughs> along the Rocky North, absolutely not say hello. Nope. <laughs> Spicy. Anyway, along the Rocky Northeast Coast of Country Atrium in Northern Ireland stands the dark and foreboding fortress that is known as Dunlin's Castle. Uh, part of the castle, which is the... Hi. Rude. Don't mind me. <laughs> um, part of the castle was the headquarters of the clan MacDonald, uh, dated back to the 14th century, and the first written record regarding the history of the castle dates back to 1513. However, the evidence shows that the outcrop on which it stands as a history of human involvement that goes back many, many centuries before that during ancient times. The site of the castle has been has seen significant both spiritually and strategically and has often been fought over. Many people have met their ends on this rock that stands high above the sea with sheer drops on all sides. The sheer difficulty in reaching this impossible fortress is punctuated by the fact that today it's a ruined castle on a summit that can only be reached by a narrow bridge from the mainland. For hundreds of years, it is said that those who are brave enough to enter the castle will face ghostly sightings and apparitions of those who have met their ends around and within the cold, gray stone walls. You apparently haven't been tonight. Oh, yes. <laughs> now, Peter is our first ghost. Uh, the castle's southeast tower stands beside the curtain wall closest to the gatehouse, and it is in this part of the fortress that it is said that the um, eternal haunt of Peter Carey likes to reside. Now, Carey was the constable of Dunluce Castle after it fell to the Queen's Lord Deputy in the 1550s. However, clearly Boyd MacDonald retook the castle, and as he uh, took it, he actually took his revenge on Carey by hanging him in that southeast tower. It is said that the spirit of Carey has never left the tower, and he is even allegedly seen on dark nights roaming the ramparts. Carrie's ghost is identifiable as he is in a dark purple cloak and wearing a ponytail, which might actually be the rope that killed him. It's a little hard to see from a distance. 
Visitors to the castle also report feeling someone push past them inside the southeast tower, despite the fact that they are the only ones there. Now we also have cats. <laughs> uh, not to be outdone, we have the northeast tower, which is said to be haunted by a white lady. There are slightly different variants of this story. However, they all agree that the white lady is the spirit of Maeve McQuillan, uh, who was imprisoned in that tower by her father to prevent her from seeing the man that she loved. She is said to have met her lover at the castle when he was either a prisoner or one of the soldiers tasked with guarding it. We can only assume that Debbie Derrick did not approve of said match. Uh-huh. Uh, the results of this heart-rending situation are debated, and one variation reads that she pined away in the tower and died of a broken heart. But the other version of the story states that May fled with her lover to the mermaid's cave to escape in a boat hidden in the cave. However, upon their escape, the sea proved to be too rough, and the pair drowned in the icy waters off the Irish coast after the boat was actually smashed against the rock. Her lover's body was washed ashore the next morning, but the sea refused to give up Maeve's body, and as such, she was denied a Christian burial. Regardless of the cause of Maeve's demise, the stories agree that her spirit haunts the tower that she was imprisoned in. After the tragedy, servants refused to enter the tower, as the screams of a banshee were sometimes heard echoing across the castle grounds. These are wretched cries that seem to originate from the Northeast Tower deep within its bowels. Many came to believe that Maeve and the Banshee were one and the same. On the rare occasion when a living soul needed to enter the neglected tower, it is said that the interior is spotless without even a speck of dust. Apparently, as far as ghosts go, Maeve or the Banshee prefers to keep things tidy. Because Maeve is said to still reside in the tower, it has become known as the McQuillan Tower, even after the McDonald's took over the castle. Now, we also have ghosts out in the kitchen. Uh, the castle, as we've mentioned, has been long abandoned and uh, because the popular myth claims that a single event led to the McDonald clan turning their back on this remarkable structure. One, on one particularly dark and stormy evening, there was a great feast being held within the castle walls. However, the feast was cut short when the Earl and his guests heard an almighty crash uh, cascade of screams. In the midst of the storm, the cliff face underneath the castle kitchen gave way, taking the kitchen with it, as well as all of those who were in the kitchen at the time. Only a single member of the kitchen staff survived, and this was young serving boy who happened to be standing on one of the small corners of the kitchen, and it was the only thing that remained before the rest had plummeted into the sea. The wife of the Earl refused to live in the castle after that, and they abandoned the castle, leaving it to fall into ruin. Now, if you ask anybody in Northern Ireland what happened to the castle, they will tell you some form of one of these stories. Uh, well, it's a great story, complete and total fabrication. The kitchen's totally packed in the room. Uh, it didn't fall in the sea, and uh, you can definitely see those complete remains with the great stone oven. However, most legends have some basis in fact, and they did, in fact, abandon the castle, but not due to the tragedy. They simply left it for more comfortable confines of Glenarm Castle, and it is Glen Arms Hospital that remains the seat of the Earls of Atrium to this day. With that said, at some point, a portion of the cast of the inner wall did actually uh, fall into the sea, and it gave rise to the legend of this being the kitchen. Although the fallen kitchen is but a myth, it is said that on dark and stormy nights, you can still hear a rock shattering and the ghostly cries of servants as they once more plunge their deaths in the icy sea below. I always find it funny that the kitchen remains, but the ghostly screams are still there, so they've got to be connected to something else. Never know. Castle's been there for centuries. Yeah, I mean, it could be a previous structure. Lots has happened there. Yep. Been under siege on, on occasions. As I said, it could be another tragedy. Could be altogether. Yep. Now, there's also some uh, poltergeist activity here. Uh, it's now a tourist attraction. It draws both those who love history and those who love dramatic landscapes. As with many such attractions, there's a receptionary and a gift shop, and there seems to be somebody who lingers in this area, uh, aside from our shopkeepers. The poltergeist activity has long been associated with this area, and it seems to be focusing on making sure that the staff knows that they are not alone when they are attending the shop. Staff report that they will come to work in the morning and find that items on the shelves have been rearranged during the night, and sometimes they will also find the radio has been turned on despite the fact that it was clearly switched off at the end of the day before. 
In every case, the castle was found to be secure with no sign of a break-in. Regardless of the haunt uh, that you might be looking for, it seems to have a little bit of something for everybody. Sorry, cats. They're in the mood tonight. They are. Uh, now, it should come as no surprise that many of the stories that we have for you tonight do revolve around castles. Um, Yes, we do have other, we we will have some that are not necessarily based in castles. They might be based in a pub. (laughs) The pub. Because pub in Ireland. So, (laughs) but anyways, our next story is about a castle, and it's about Charleville Castle in Tullamore, which is, uh, if that name sounds familiar, that is because you've probably heard of Tullamore Dew. Um, We have a little bit of everything here in the house. We got our Jameson, we got our Tullamore, we got our... Bush Mills. We have our Baileys. We have our Baileys, yes, we have our Baileys. We have our Guinness. We're, we're well-stocked on the Irish front. But, yeah, so the uh, Tullamore has more than just the, uh, the distillery there. They also have Charlotte Castle. So this is in the central portion of the Republic of Ireland, and it's there uh, in the uh, County of Fowley is uh, mm-hmm. what the name of the county is. And that's that, actually where our family's from. Yeah, that might be at least one of the possibilities. Well, yeah. There are Hooligans in O'Fally, and there are Hooligans down by Cork. So I haven't been able to trace it all the way back yet, but somewhere in that area. It's Ireland. <laughs> now, so, um, now, as with uh, just about every corner of Ireland, of course there is plenty of history to go around, and just to the southwest of Tullamore's town center is that notorious Charleville Castle, located in what they call a primordial forest. It's basically, you know, almost right in the smack dab center of air, the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the island that Ireland is part of, they call it Eater. Yes. So, uh, now, originally called the Charleville Forest Castle, it was commissioned in 1798 by the first Earl of Charleville, surprise, by the name of Charles William Barry. This imposing edifice was designed by the renowned Irish architect, Francis Johnson, and was completed in 1812. Now, by Ireland standards, this is, makes for a pretty new haunt, actually. You know, it's just a couple hundred years old. Now, some say that the castle is nestled amongst the trees, while others may claim that the forest entombs the building. Given the terrifying nature of the tales they have collected here over the generations, it seems that the entombed crowd might have a case on this one. So how does such a picturesque castle, castle gather such a fearsome reputation? Now, to do... Uh, so go ahead and start with this. We actually have to go back to the land before the castle was built. Mm-hmm. As is no surprise, you know, oftentimes, um, you know, the land will retain the energy that predates any structure that was there, and this is no exception. The site was originally home to an ancient monastery or what you might call an, a sacred druid site. The truth is shrouded in the passage of over a thousand years, and what few bits of historical evidence there are could lend to either argument. Whether any of the ghosts stem from those ancient times is debatable, but who doesn't love the idea of ancient hauntings? More modern and more sinister, rumors swirl around the man that commissions the structure with claims that the first earl practiced devil worship. Then there are the geophysical explanations that some have, stating that the building was constructed on ancient ley lines in in order to take advantage of the natural magnetic energies thought to be prevalent there. These are just a few of the many theories about why Charleville Castle is as haunted as it is. We may never know for sure if these theories are true, let alone if they contribute to the paranormal, but in any case, the structure has many chilling tales to share. The most famous ghost of Charleville Castle is perhaps its most tragic. Harriet, the young golden-haired daughter of one of the earls of Charleville, was sliding playfully down the banister of the grand staircase when she lost her balance and fell to her death on the cold stone floor below. Many visitors have felt the sudden rush of cold air when traversing the stairway. Others have seen the child's spirit not only on the steps but throughout the rest of the house as well. She seems to play a spirited game of hide-and-seek. She has occasionally been spotted playing with a small boy, but his identity remains a mystery. The two young spirits are not content to play alone, and they are believed to be the source of some playful mischief. They are the prime suspects in an incident where a living daughter of the house was inexplicably locked in a cupboard in the playroom. A kinder and more famous tale linked with this pair of a child ghosts revolves around the small son of Bridget Vance, who purchased and started to renovate the castle in the 1970s. Her son came up missing one day when he was only three years old. 
Frantically, the family searched the castle for him, terrified that he might fall from the stairs or from one of the galleries. They finally found him at the bottom of the staircase where he had told where he told them that a boy and a girl had looked after him as he came down the stairs. So they might be a little mischievous, but they also they know what's right and wrong. They know what to protect. Yep. So a cavalcade of other paranormal activity has been reported across the castle proper. The many spirits are often heard chatting amongst themselves and walking throughout the building. On occasion, misty apparitions have been spotted moving about the building's hallways. These spirits are generally benign, content to mind their business and carry on as they did in life. However, there is one spirit that tends to be a bit territorial. There is one balcony at the castle that has been off limits and sealed for many years now. It is said that this balcony has been claimed as the territory of a powerful elemental being. Depending on the accounts that you read, this being is either a powerful witch or a collective of elemental spirits that have joined into a single sentient being. No matter the source of this elemental, an owner of the castle was warned by a spiritualist that this being was very bad news and would not hesitate to do harm to those who dared to trespass upon its territory. Taking the warning to heart, the owner locked up the balcony and has kept it that way ever since. Finally, one of the legends of Charleville Castle is that of the King Oak, a huge ancient tree that had a special relationship to the Burry family. It was said that if one of the branches fell from the tree, a member of the family would pass away shortly thereafter. The legend bore out one final time in 1963 when the tree was devastated by a lightning strike. While the tree ultimately managed to survive this trauma, the same could not be said for the Barry family. Within a matter of days, Charles Howard Barry, the head of the Barry family and the last of the family to own the castle, passed away. For anyone who likes to read about random and somewhat interesting historical figures, I would recommend that you check out Mr. Charles Howard Barry, or Colonel mm-hmm. Charles Howard Barry, as he was known, as he is one of those larger-than-life individuals who led a truly fascinating life. And uh, just to kind of go ahead and put it into perspective, he was not, he never did scale Everest himself, but he and a team were amongst the ones that went to Everest to scout out around for base camps and to make, lay the groundwork for all the people that climb Everest today. And that's just one you know, small example of the many fascinating adventures that he had during his lifetime. Yeah. So with that, we'll go ahead and we will move on. <laughs> They're drinking. (laughs) Every time we say haunt, drink. Oh, God. (laughs) Your guys are going to be trashed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Lots of comments. Anything I need to tell us for? Uh, (laughs) Odin and the kitties are preparing for battle. Asgard must be protected. Oh, yes. Odin's actually going to be living with a family who watches with us quite frequently. I'm not sure if they're on tonight, but uh, yeah. yeah. So, cheers, Donna. <laughs> to your little thing, to your game. <laughs> All right, so we're going to go to Malhide Castle in the north of Dublin. Uh, moving down to the eastern Irish coast, just a little north of Dublin, you will find Malhide Castle. The castle's oldest part dates back to the 12th century, and it was the home of the Talbot family for almost 800 years. With such a long history, it comes no surprise that the castle has sometimes played host to some dark and violent episodes. This is perhaps the best illustrated, excuse me, this is perhaps best illustrated by the events of the Battle of Boyne in 1689, when 14 men of the family sat down for breakfast together in the morning. They rode off for battle, and by dinner time, only one remained alive. The darker episodes of the castle history have, of course, contributed to much of its haunted reputation. One of the castle's most well-known specters is that of the son of Baron Galtrum, or Sir Walter Puffy. He was killed in the battle on his wedding day in the 15th century. He is said to wander the castle at night, groaning in pain while pointing to the spear wound on his side. He is a heartbroken ghost because his bride-to-be, Lady Maud Plunkett, marries his rival, immediately after his death. Then there's Lady Plunkett herself. Her marriage to the rival was short-lived, and this has left Maude a bit of a traumatized uh, spirit, and she's in a rather paranoid state. Watch out. (laughs) But it is very curious what Chris is commenting to everybody. 
Now, nevertheless, she was married again, and this time to the Lord Chief Justice. Ma's mental state led her to be, uh, led her being very possessive of her new husband, and they often fought about the situation, with Ma being the instigator of said fights. To this day, centuries after their respective deaths, Lady Plunkett can still be seen pursuing the Lord Chief Justice through the halls of Mulholly's Castle, and so much for us uh, until death do us part. Then there's Puck, and yes, we are discussing possibly the uh, inspiration for Puck, or maybe just named after the Puck in Shakespeare because he's very similar. Very similar. Yeah. So Puck, who served not only as the court jester for the Talbots, but also as a watchman. His duties as a watchman gave him close access to the castle prisoners, including Lady Eleanor Fitzgerald, who was detained at the castle by Henry VIII for inciting a rebellion. Puck fell in love with Lady Fitzgerald, and it is this love that is thought to have doomed him. There are several versions of Puck's demise, but the most popular seems that Puck was found with a stab wound to the heart, still wearing his jester suit and cap outside the castle walls on a snowy December night. Puck was found before his death, and he swore that he would haunt the castle, and it seems to be following through with that promise. Numerous castle visitors have reported seeing the jester's face on the photos while they were taken in the castle. And again, we have another white lady. There's a lot of white ladies around Ireland, too. She is a beautiful but unknown woman who inhabits the painting where she dons a flowing white dress. Not only is her identity unknown, but no one seems to know where her painting originated from. Regardless of the source, it is said that she will sometimes leave her painting to wander through the castle grounds over a period of many years she has been seen and possibly photographed by several people. we got some Harry Potter stuff going on in this castle. Yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, there's the ghost of Miles Corbett. Miles was, the, uh, great, was granted the castle by Oliver Cromwell, being one of the 59 members of Parliament to sign off on King Charles I's death warrant. They were known as regicides. Yep. King killers. King killers. The Talbot family was evicted during this time, and as you might imagine, the eventual execution of Cromwell did not bode well for Corbett's fortune. The newly reinstated monarchy, led by King Charles II, subsequently sentenced all those who had signed off on his predecessor's death or to death. Corbett initially fled to the Netherlands, allowing the Talbots to return to Malta's. Uh, fate caught up with Corbett two years later, and he found his end at the gallows. But his spirit is believed to have returned to the castle, where he's not only seen in the halls of the castle, but also in his suit of armor. Much like Corbett's brief ascension to power in his suit of armor will crumble away before your very eyes. Any fun comments? Donnie's already plotting for a, a joint... Um Spirit Guides, Haunts of Richmond, Trip to Ireland. I'm in. <laughs> Are they allowing us in yet? Can we go now? <laughs> <laughs> and it looks like uh, Alex is going to give in and start playing games. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, did you tell them where uh, Odin was going? I said he was going to a family that often watches on these shows. Yes, yeah. friend of ours in the paranormal community. Yep. So, yep. So he won't be too far from home. Nope, we will actually be able to keep up with him. So, yay. I, I don't feel like naming names. If she wants to name, she may name. Yes. <laughs> yeah, don't know if she was able to tune in tonight. Yeah. But either way, friend of ours in the paranormal community. So, yes. Uh, where were we? Oh, Dublin. Yeah. Yeah, we were Dublin, 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 Dublin. Down in actual Dublin, yeah. in the city of Dublin. Rather than north of Dublin. Rather than north of Dublin. <laughs> so, now, uh, of course, if you've ever had the opportunity to go to Ireland, and it's been way too long for us. God, can we What, about five years, five years Five years. Five years of Facebook. Yeah, five years last, over, last, over last Thanksgiving. Yep. So, it's been over five years. It's been a little while. Uh, but, you go, yeah, go anywhere throughout the country, and you will see um, the stereotypical old, Beautiful, but still, you know, beautiful, kind of worn, but still well-kept cemeteries. 
Um, they, they take very good care of their cemeteries well after all the families and the generations have, uh, have passed away. Or moved away. Yeah, uh, you might find that the gravestones can be a little illegible at times because of uh, just wearing away with the years, but still the grounds are very well respected by the people there. And uh, that is very true of uh, right in the heart of Dublin as well. There is a Glasnevin Cemetery in Dublin. Now, this one is a relatively new one. It, it, uh, it's uh, less than 200 years old. It uh, first opened its gates, new by Ireland standards. It opened its gates in 1832, and in that in that time, since it was first founded and opened, over one and a half million people have been buried on its grounds. It has grown to become one of the most significant landmarks of the North Dublin landscape. It spans an impressive 124 acres of land, including a museum, a cafe, a restaurant, and a genealogy office where people from far and wide can make sense of their connections to distant relatives buried on the grounds. Now, looking at Glasnevin now, you would never be able to fathom a guess as to its humble beginnings. It once covered a meager nine acres and acted as a place where those of every Christian denomination could be laid to rest. This was of particular importance for Catholics, as the penal laws that were written by the dominant Anglican Church of England were designed to make life for Catholics miserable enough so that they would be encouraged to convert. These miseries even extended to religious burial rites, but Glesnevin Cemetery aims to change that. Now, the cemetery opened to much public attention, as I said, 1832, February 22nd to be exact. In appearance as well as function, it was entirely unique. A Victorian-style walled plot of land where, at a time of great turmoil in Irish history, peace and civility were greatly encouraged. On its inaugural date, the first person to be buried within its cemetery walls was an 11-year-old child by the name of Michael Carey. A resident of Francis Street in Dublin, Michael was the son of a respected but impoverished local scrap metal dealer, and the marker of his grave still stands tall in the cemetery today. Despite the community fanfare upon its opening, Glasnevin Cemetery did not enjoy a prestigious reputation in its early years. In the 1830s and 1840s, informal pits were dug in the cemetery to accommodate the lives lost to cholera outbreaks. It also became known as the final resting place for those who could not be laid to rest on denomination-specific ground. This meant unbaptized babies, atheist adults, and those who had taken their own lives. For children buried in Glasnevin, a special area known as, the, uh, known as the Angel's Plot was conceived and implemented, and it is still used today as a special space for Irish families mourning the loss of an infant. The standing of the cemetery saw significant change around the time that its original champion, Daniel O'Connell, was himself buried in a family vault on Glasnevin grounds in 1847. Today, this vault is known as O'Connell's Tower, a structure which rises a mass of 168 feet above ground and is an instantly recognizable element of the Glasnevin skyline. The tower was damaged in a 1971 bomb blast, thought to have been planted by loyalists during the Troubles, and was closed to the public for many years. As of 2018, it has been reopened. O'Connell's Coffin, which is decorated in beautiful Celtic artwork, is available for viewing to all those who pay the tower a visit. It is even said that touching it will inspire many years of good fortune. In the years that followed O'Connell's death, many other major players in Ireland's political reformation were interred in Glesnevin, including the renowned Republican leader and player in the 1916 Easter Rising, Michael Collins. For almost two centuries, Glesnevin Cemetery has also been the burial place of many of Ireland's finest and most internationally renowned artists, writers, and musicians. Amongst those that you might find most familiar was globally acclaimed writer Brendan Behan, who was laid to rest in Glasnevin in 1964. His play, The Queer Fellow, was popularized in the famous Irish music standard, The Old Triangle and is still frequently sung in musical sessions all around Ireland today. And, well, if you catch an Irish session on this side of the pond, I've heard many a time over here as well. Christy Brown, an Irish writer and planter with cerebral palsy, who is famous for his ability to write and type with only the toes of one foot, was laid to rest in Glasnevin in 1981. Brown's most known work <clears throat> is his autobiography. Excuse me. Known as My Left Foot. My Left Foot. I taught it. <laughs> <laughs> In 
and it was made into a film of the same name seven years after his death. And he, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis himself, mm-hmm. played the role of Brown and won multiple Academy Awards. That was one of the first ones, I think. Mm-hmm. Luke Kelly, the lead singer of the Irish band The Dubliners. You've probably heard of, was buried in Glasnevin in 1984. His legacy and contributions to Ireland's music industry resonate to this day, and numerous documentaries and anthologies have been created to capture his roller coaster of a life. Now, both parents of the famous novelist James Joyce also rest in Glasnevin. While James himself is buried in Zurich, Switzerland, there's currently a very controversial idea being floated to have him and his family exhumed and reinterred in his native Dublin. That idea aside, Glasnevin Cemetery was the setting for the Hades episode of James Joyce's famous novel, Ulysses. So the history of Glasnevin Cemetery is saturated with the full spectrum of the Irish experience, from the most famous to the most impoverished of the island's recent history. Many believe that these experiences still echo across the landscape of this resting place and that many spirits wander the grounds of the cemetery today. Fortunately, most of the spirits rumored to haunt the pathways of the sprawling space are said to be benevolent in nature. When the Northern Irish Royal Navy Captain James, or excuse me, John McNeil Boyd, or Captain James McNeil Boyd, the captain of the ship HMS Ajax, tank in 1861. Sorry, I had a typo in there. <laughs> a rescue party was dispatched to search for the ship's crew. The searchers found a lifeboat, but all the people on board had perished. The only living creature found was the captain's massive dog, a Newfoundland that was beside itself with grief. When Boyd was interred in Glesnevin, the dog stayed by the graveside of his late master, refusing to eat or sleep. Eventually, the poor creature starved to death. Today, many cemetery visitors report seeing the huge, immensely loyal creature resting peacefully in that very spot. Another popular urban legend concerns the Gravedigger's Pub, which is a nickname for uh, held by Kavanaugh's Pub in Glasnevin for many years. Yes, the cemetery has a pub. The pub's proximity to so many graves has inspired whispers of supernatural happenings at the bar. Many pub goers have described seeing an older gentleman dressed in vintage tweed who sits in a corner quietly drinking a pint. When he finishes his drink, he's been known to vanish in the blink of an eye. When this sighting is shared with a member of the staff, they've been known to recommend buying this amicable but unknown spirit a pint for the road. The current staff of Glesnevin Cemetery have been known to embrace the site's paranormal side. In 2018, they hosted a Halloween festival on the grounds of the cemetery that shares the Dublin Botanical Garden which featured a pumpkin decorating contest, a grave digger tour, and a storytelling supper. Sounds like a fun place. Sounds like right up our alley. We missed it last time we were there in Dublin. Yeah. We'll have to check it out next time. Well, we didn't stay too long in Dublin. No. One night when we got there, one night when we got back. Yeah. Better organize trip next time. <laughs> we keep without saying the that. Without the Yeah, without the eyes. There's that little detail. Oh, <laughs> question. You want me to look further into such a trip? <laughs> Yes, but not until 2023 because 2022 is booked. <laughs> what? Hopefully our own trip. <laughs> yes, I am dangling a teaser there. All right, so we're going to uh, jump over to Wicklow to the Wicklow uh, Jail, um, or Gauls as they're called over there. Uh, this is just a little further south of Dublin in County Wicklow, and uh, there seems to be a lot of ghostly going on in the Wicklow Bell, just similar to the Dublin one that we read this whole morning one that we talked about before. Uh, and it's no surprise, considering the truly black uh, history of such a place. It was built in 1702. The first prisoner there was thought to be Father Owen McPhee, a 72-year-old priest, who was convicted of saying mass despite being banned by the invading English. He was steadfast in his rebellion and dedicated to Catholicism, and it led him to being thrown into a cell and resolved. After this, he was put into a creaky old ship and posted to the British colony in the Americas. At the time, Father McKee was uh, living in the Gaul, and the conditions were beyond appalling. In fact, they were so utterly terrible that the guides of the night don't fully explain the conditions in which these tormented souls live in, for fear of their guests not getting a full night's sleep for the rest of their lives. Uh, we got a hint of this when we visited the Mormon Dublin. Now, the reason for these awful conditions was the level of power given to the, golf, or the jailer at the time. 
The jailers were paid a wage by the government of the day, and from this they were expected to supply the prisoners with food, bedding, heat, lighting, and clothes. Needless to say, many of them provided only the barest minimum to those entrusted in their care and kept the balance for themselves. At the time of the jail's inception, there was little, if any, supervision of the prison system, and the jailer was responsible to no overseeing body. For the prisoners who were jailed as debtors with no money or means to pay the jailer, life in the jail was exceptionally hard. Worse than still, there was no separation of prisoners based on their supposed crimes. All prisoners were held together, men and women, guilty with those awaiting trials, the same with the mentally ill. It was not rectified until much, much later when the prison reformers set about to right these wrongs, but for many, it was too late. Reformation legislation was slowly enacted starting in the 1760s, and it attempted to provide a better sanitation and living conditions for the prisoners, so it took considerable time for the act to actually be put into operation. Prisoners eventually were separated according to their gender, crimes, and mental state. However, with the rising rebellion, the jails started filling up with beyond capacity, so much so that the uh, jail's physical structure was at risk of collapsing. The quick solution was required. The result? Banishment. The practice of transporting criminals from England and Ireland beyond the seas was formalized in 1716 with the Banishment Act. Initially, those who were transported were sent to the Americas. When the colony was lost uh, due to the American War of Independence in 1776, another destination was required. New South Wales, Australia, was considered the perfect place for those rejected from society. Prisoners usually never saw Irish shores again. Even if they even survived their journey to New South Wales and lived out their sentence, they were usually too poor to pay for the journey back from, to the old world from New South Wales. It was a sentence most harsh, especially for mothers who left their children behind. Over 600 Irishmen who were involved in the 1798 rebellion were transported. Of that number, approximately 105 were Wicklow men, the highest number of men uh, from any county. It is for this reason that the front gates of the Wicklow jail were considered the gates of hell. Once you entered, you were never seen again. As for the ghosts of the jail, there could be many apparitions of many people. Many were executed at the jail for their crimes, but others simply succumbed to the misery. The history of Ireland is dotted with episodes of famine, which led to some people to commit a petty crime to be taken to the jail so they could just get something to eat. Others convicted were thrown in there for a variety of misdemeanors, such as sheep stealing, assault, highway robbery, burglary, vagrancy, and murder. It was closed as a jail in 1900, however, it was reopened again in 1918 and manned by the British Army to house members of the Irish Republican Brotherhood and Sean Penn. The jail closed again its final time in 1924. It fell into ruin before being restored in recent times as a tourist attraction. I don't know what it is about us who might be with the old jail. Fascination with our picture. Mm-hmm. All right, so... Haunting drink. <laughs> and with the background of human despair, it's no wonder that there are some torture souls that still haunt the cells and the walkways of the jail. The jail received an international attention in 2009 when ghost hunters and a national investigated the site. Their investigation turned up a wealth of paranormal activity, but you don't need to be a professional ghost hunter to have the experience at Low Jail. There are many reports from both tourists and the guides that tell of the spirits willfully lingering around. Over the last 10 years, tourists and jail staff have been baffled by the regular appearance of a young boy in the historic prison school room. He appears often, and his life and exact reason for being there are a mystery. Visitors who photograph the room will sometimes come away with a red silhouette of the young spirit. Some of the guides will also report that they never feel alone in the schoolroom, as if the boy's presence hangs heavy in the space. A lady in her late 20s, dressed completely in black, makes an occasional appearance. She walks in and out of cell 22 on the first floor. And again, why she shows an unwillingness to pass over remains a mystery. Another common event is the appearance of a cold and eerie mist that envelops the walkway to the first floor cells. Other separate incidents that have been reported. 
A group of visiting primary school students from Austria were dumbstruck when a hanging mist latched onto their teacher and enveloped her in a huge ball, moving with her when she moved. On another occasion, an elderly woman passed out in cell 12, which tells the story of Wicklow's rebel, Billy Barnes. A fainting lady refused to continue the tour. She later reported that she felt pressure around her neck and she couldn't breathe. Billy Barnes was hanged in the jail, and many people think it's Billy himself trying to be hurt. Another incident, uh, in another incident, all 11 jail staffers claimed they were overcome one evening when the entire floor in front of them began to move. Today, it's a place of, it um, remains a place of mystery, imperfection, and unexplained happening. Definitely something to check out. But. <laughs> so, you're just, we're having a little side conversation. Uh-huh. Sorry. <laughs> So, apparently Donnie says he's going to be retiring in 2023. Trip? Yeah, yeah. That's I thought, really I trip. More time for travel. So, yeah, of course, retire from the day job, but yeah. uh, not from the paranormal, which, too, I was curious by. I'm never going to be retiring from the paranormal because when I'm gone, I'm going to come back and haunt everybody the whole time. It's contractually obligated in yeah. our business. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, Yeah. Everybody wants to make sure that I come back and haunt them. Um, but Alex said that I need to provide a code word to make sure that everybody knows that it's me. The code word, code word is Guinness. 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 I'll be Jameson. Mm. Um, Chris will haunt those with OCD tilting the pictures. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I... I... <laughs> <laughs> oh. I'll give something to read for a while and I'll tweet the picture. <laughs> uh, so, our next stop, we are actually coming back up into Dublin. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I mentioned pub. This is going to be a pub. So, the uh, established in 1198 as a tavern and ale house. Yeah, 1198. That's, that's, that's an old pub. That's like an old it. pub. Now, the Brazen Head is considered the second second oldest pub in Ireland, while Sean's Bar in Central Ireland has documented proof that it is older, the Brazen Head brazenly claims that it is Ireland's oldest pub. It was built as a coaching inn in 15, um, uh, the current building was built as a coaching inn in 1754 on the site of emergent dwelling dating back to at least 1613. Regardless of its oldest status, it is considered to be exceedingly haunted. It was here that the United Irishmen planned the, uh, planned the Irish Rebellion of 1803. There's been many Irish rebellions. You need to make sure that you get the year right. In the aftermath of the failed rebellion of 1798, a young revolutionary named Robert Emmett fled to the continent to try and regroup. His attempts to secure support from France failed, but undeterred, he returned to Ireland in 1802 and set up shop in Dublin. The Brazen Head became Emmett's home and headquarters. Strategically located only a few hundred meters from the west of Dublin Castle, it was, which was the seat of English power in Ireland at the time, Emmett hoped to surprise the British and claim the elusive independence that he so feverishly desired. Emmett's room at the inn overlooked the main door so he could see possible enemies approach, but despite Emmett's passion, caution, and organization, the rebellion failed. On September 20th, 1803, Emmett was executed by hanging and beheaded on nearby Thomas Street. This punishment is better known by the chilling phrase, drawn and quartered, and Emmett was the last to receive this medieval sentence from a British court in Ireland. Ironically, the executioner was also a frequent patron of the Breaking Head, and it meant that it was very likely that he and Emmett had crossed paths on numerous occasions before the fateful day. There were other warriors that sought refuge at this local pub. Michael Collins, previously mentioned, part of the United Irishmen in 1916, and the leaders of the War of Independence, War of Independence for Ireland, just clarifying. <clears throat> yep. uh, Collins and other, others gathered here for meetings to plan the revolution. The Brazen Head was almost destroyed during the Easter Rising, of 1916 and again during the Civil War of 1922. Other famous patrons known to have visited the establishment include 
uh, authors uh, James Joyce, who mentioned the pub in Ulysses, and Jonathan Swift, the author of Gulliver's Travels. Today, the pub is still frequented by some of, some of its former regulars, including the aforementioned Robert Emmett. It is said that Emmett's blood ran down the street towards the brazen head, the space where his one-time hopes were violently dashed. In his speech from the dock during his trial, <clears throat> Emmett famously asked that his grave not be marked until Ireland was a sovereign nation. With great patriotism, he proclaimed, let them and me rest in obscurity and peace, and my name remain uninscribed until other times and other men can do justice to my character. When my country takes her place among the nations of the earth, then, and not until then, let my epitaph be written. Emmett's remains were sent to Kilmanham uh, Jail, uh, and it was there that they were supposed to be claimed, but when friends of Emmett arrived, the remains were missing. Some think that Emmett's remains were secreted, secretly interned at St. Mitchin's Church on Church Street, a church associated with the United Irishmen, but this was never confirmed. Others say that Emmett was secretly buried in the brazen head itself, well, over the years, other locations have been named as suspected resting places, but many of his supporters gave up the search in favor of a particular phrase, do not look for him. His grave is Ireland. Whatever Emmett's remains are, his ghost carries on. The brazen head now hosts Robert Emmett's headless apparition as he is often spotted in the corner of the bar. We like to think that he is not only keeping watch for his enemies, including his executioner, but maybe, just maybe, Emmett might finally be taking some comfort in the existence of the Independent Republic of Ireland. And they'll throw a party when they all reunite. <laughs> we are actually at 915. Yeah. Yeah, getting close. Making marking at the time. Getting close mm-hmm. what? Our own mark. Oh. Okay. Is it over by a few minutes of time? Have Okay. Well, where? I think this might be our last story. Okay. I think. I don't know what to cut out. All right. We're so. reading on. <laughs> We're going to go up to County Derry. Uh, and this is Glenolan, who wants another vampire origin story. Because I could not do this one. All right, so as we discussed before, the most popular, uh, most widely popular story boils down to Dracula equaling that of an old Roman prince, Vlad the Impaler. We have also noted that there is another claim to the original vampire, including Lilith and the Blood Countess, among others. And, well, here's the Irish one. In Northern Ireland, uh, just east of Derry, between the towns of Garvon and Dungiven, we find a clue to another Dracula origin tale. In the middle of the field in the remote town of Slocavary is an area locally known as the Giant's Grave, but it might actually be more accurately described as Abacharctus. How do you pronounce that? Abacharctus tomb. Abacharctus. Yes. Abacharctus. I had to read my pronunciation. <laughs> On the grave, there is a curling thorn bush under which lies a large and heavy stone. Originally, there were more stones around us of an old monument, but these had been removed over time by local farmers for building purposes. However, there's a little doubt that the tomb was once an imposing structure and that gave it a, the townland its name. But who was he? During the 5th and 6th centuries, this region was a patchwork of petty kingdoms, each with its own local ruler or king. In reality, these kings were likely little more than tribal warlords. There's some ample evidence of their rule as the countryside is dotted with hill forts, urban strongholds, and other early fortifications marking their respective territories. Avatar, according to tradition, was one of these chieftains. Local descriptions of him vary. Some say he was deformed in some way, others say he was a dwarf. However, most accounts agree that he was a powerful wizard and was extremely evil. He was a jealous and suspicious man who trusted no one, not even his wife, who he convicted of having an adulterous affair. He decided to catch her in the act. One night, he climbed out one of the windows of their castle and crept along a ledge towards his wife's bedroom. However, either because of his deformity or poor balance, he slipped and fell to his death. His body was found the following morning, and the people of the town quickly buried him. 
He was a high-ranking chieftain with the same rights as a king, so he was very standing upright, which was the custom at the time. However, the following day, he returned and demanded that each of his subjects cut their wrists and gather the blood in a bowl. They were told to do this and then deliver the blood to him each day in order to sustain his life. Too terrified to refuse, they did as he ordered. Eventually, the people decided they couldn't live this way, and they hated him when he was alive, and now that he returned as uh, one Marbeno, or Marbeno, uh, the living dead, they were terrified of what he could do to them. Marbeno. Marbeno. It doesn't, it's not pronounced, it's Gaelic, it's not pronounced anything like how it's spelled. Yeah, which is what I'm trying to do. I tried to put the pronunciations. Yeah. Marbeno. <laughs> They decided to hire an assassin to kill him, so they persuaded another chieftain, Catherine, to perform the deed for him. Now Catherine flew, Arbatoff, and buried him once again, standing upright in an isolated grave. However, the following day, he returned again, evil as ever, and once again demanding a bowl of blood, drawn from the veins of each of his subjects, in order to sustain his vile corpse. In great terror, the people asked Catherine to come once more and slay him once again. This Catherine did, burying the corpse as before. However, the following day, yet again, he returned, again, demanding the same glory tribute of the people. He knows the pattern here. He likes blood. He does. Close by was said to have been the hermitage of an early Christian saint known as John, who is credited with having found the place of worship in the area. The site is still known as Church House, although... Any relative foundation has long since vanished. With that said, it is said that this druid was saying that Catherine is believed to have gone to for some help. The venerable old man listened carefully to the tale, and when he was finished, the old man said to him, this chieftain is not really alive, though his devilish arts have allowed him to become one of the undead. He has become a drinker of human blood, and he can't actually be slain, but he can be restrained. He then proceeded to give the astonished captain instructions about how to suspend the vampiric creature. The old man said that he must be slain with a sword made of new wood and must be buried upside down in the earth. Thorn and ash quakes must be sprinkled around him and a heavy stone must be placed directly on top of him. Should the stone be lifted, however, he will be free to walk the earth once more. Captain returned and did exactly what the holy man had told him. And he was slain with a wooden sword and buried upside down. Swords were placed around the grave site, and on top of the grave, Captain built a great tomb, which could be seen for miles around. This has now vanished, as we have said, but the last stone and the tree, which grew from the scattered thorns, rises above it. Nobody has touched that last stone. Good on that. They tried. The land on which the grave is situated has acquired a rather sinister reputation over the years. Locally, it's considered to be bad ground and has been the subject of a number of family disagreements. In 1997, attempts were made to clear the land, but if local tradition is to be believed, workmen who tried to sell the tree found that their brand new chainsaw stopped for no reason on three occasions. When attempting to lift the great stone, a steel chain suddenly snapped, cutting the hand of one of the laborers and significantly allowing blood to soak into the ground. Those are these right. But they weren't successful. No, they were Yes, thankfully. <laughs> Although the legend still abounds in the locality of the man who was buried three times with a fantastic treasure that was buried with him, a few local people will approach the grave, especially after death. This, then in the essence, is the legend of the post-historic edition. But it is simply an isolated tale, or does it fit to the tradition of Irish tales of vampires? A few. The spilling of blood was not uncommon amongst the ancient Irish. Indeed, animal blood was ritually left even under Christian rites at Colin St. Martin's Eve, November 11th. The roots of this tradition go back to pagan times when even when and they even have some connection with the tales of the returning dead. The horrors of the famine added considerably to the lore. The blood of pigs and cows supplemented a meager diet. Drunk either raw or made into relish cakes, a mixture of meal, vegetable cups, and blood brought it together as kind of a patty. Although most cultures have their parent stories, such tales have a particular reticence in Ireland, where interest in the veneration of the dead seems to have played a central part in Celtic. However, it was the historian and folklorist Patrick Weston Joyce 
actually made connections between Habitat and the Irish vampire tradition. Joyce enthusiastically recounted the legend in his own book, The History of Ireland in 1880. This was 17 years before Dracula was published, and it's believed that Stoker, then a Dublin citizen civil servant, read Joyce's work and the legend with some relish. Around the same time, manuscript copies of Geoffrey uh, Keating's History of Ireland, which made much of the undead, were placed in public display in the National Museum of Dublin. These were unloaded from the Trinity College Library, which possesses the two manuscript copies. The display included a chapter 10 on the undead. Although Stoker himself could not read Irish, he had many friends and acquaintances that did, and he may have received at least part of the work in translation. So there you have it. Because we have a vampire king coupled with a strong tradition of blood drinking Irish chieftains and nobles being responsible for the uh, birth of Dracula? Possibly. Seems like another good, strong possibility. Who knows where Joker got his ideas? He probably told him a lot of things like Shakespeare did. Yep. And that's it. That was the last one for this evening. Yes. Because I did include. Two vessels in the Hellfire. Because I cut over 3,000 words from the script, or at least relegated them to a future uh, future broadcast. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, Patrick says, Source of Wonder and his right, this is why he loves werewolves. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do have um, Thomas uh, Charleston coming up next time, and yeah. then after that, we're going to do Witches. Yep. So, yeah, as you know, uh, or if you watched us last time, two weeks ago, you know that we uh, had have had a little. Uh, Vacation a little bit away down to uh, down to Charleston. Uh, well, since uh, since then, so we have some stories. We visited a lot of the places that we're going to be talking about. Yes, and, had a little uh, interaction with you, Todd, or a post while we were down there. Yep. I had a little exoplasm on my back while we were in the graveyard. <laughs> yep, because, and uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, well, actually, we'll even have one little story uh, to uh, share with you that you're not going to find in any book because it comes uh, came directly from a. a a shopkeeper that we talked to while we were down there. Yep. Uh, so yeah, we got all kinds of you know uh, fun stuff coming up for Haunted Charleston, at least Haunted Charleston episode one because Charleston's a very haunted town. So we will. Uh, there's a heck of a lot more to talk about than uh, we can talk about in one broadcast. So. Yeah. I saw. 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 I That's the veteran facilitator keeping an eye on that clock and wrapping it up right on time. <laughs> Whereas I could just sit here and drink and talk to you all mind, or at least until I go home. I'm starting to go horse. So, yay, Colin. Just the hot toddy tonight. Time to thank you all for happy St. Patty's Day. Yep. Blessing be to you all. I hope you all have a very uh, enjoyable and safe St. Patty's Day this uh, this coming Wednesday. Yes, we will be down at our favorite pub with our guys. Yep. Uh, when they get together because it's been way too long. So yeah. All done. But um, people are uh, people are getting vaccinated and all that. So it's uh, yes, yes. I'm halfway. I'm there. still waiting for my. Yeah. Either way, but um, but uh, yeah, you know, unfortunately, the the pubs can't be wide open on St. Patrick's Day as I'm sure they would love to be. Uh, but uh, we, we got our reservations. We got our re- reservations, so we'll be able to go down and have some Irish fun on St. Patty's Day. Yep. Uh, and for everybody else, no matter how or where you enjoy it, hope you enjoy, uh, you know, have a safe one as well. Yep. Uh, let's see. So Patrick says, witches sound like fun. Yes. Which yeah, is that would really be a very interesting. The the script. script. I'm still researching right now. Still in its very early stages, and we're um, debating exactly what should and what should not be. And in our script, and I think what we're going to focus on is going to be. Um, no, I wouldn't say anything yet. Yeah. Don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. Maybe, yeah, we'll, maybe yeah. we'll know better in a couple of weeks after. Yeah, uh, still compiling stories. Some of them have haunting, some of them don't. So it's just a desire of how we're going to mix it all together. Yeah. Uh, and and Alex did say, can't wait for Charleston. Do we have any Savannah ones? We will definitely we will definitely be doing Savannah. We we love Savannah. Mm-hmm. This was our first trip to Charleston. Yep. We have been to Savannah several times. Yep. Absolutely love Savannah. 
And uh, no offense to Charleston. We had a good time there. We will go back. There's a lot to see and enjoy there. That we didn't get to do this time. Yeah, um, but honestly, I think for us. We prefer Savannah. Savannah edges it out just by a little bit. Um, uh, but, yeah, so that is not a knock on Charleston. Charleston yeah. was a lot of fun and it was a wonderful just, There are places that call to you and Savannah calls to us. Yep. So. so. But, yes, we will definitely do a haunted Savannah at some point. Maybe, uh, who knows, maybe we'll manage to get a little weekend trip in down there sooner than later and we can. Maybe at work. Yeah. This is one from that model. Dyer of St. Mary's County, Leonardtown 1600's Alleged Witch. Yes, I have that one. That's, that's in my research. Okay. So, Glenn, it, is, it looks like it's uh, going to be heading, to, heading for the script. So we will have yeah. that one for you. Yeah, there's, there's been a lot of ones that I've found, obviously, just besides Salem Witch, but there was um, talk of actually witches in, in Charleston in the book I've read. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's um, pirate witches I found some stories on, and uh, a couple of other ones that were just kind of like... <laughs> Where's um, it going to go? Where's yeah, it gonna go? we found one that actually is where the, the, the term a baker's dozen comes from. Mm-hmm. I think we decided that one wasn't going to make it in. We we're going to do that with another thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, a lot of interesting things. So. But uh, oh, Savannah was where um, Alex and uh, her husband Paul honeymoon. Oh, lovely! We did our five-year anniversary there. Yes. The first time we went, it's been ten years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we went the first weekend in. August and it was trickle ditches and I got keel over. We got fun though. We did once I had a nap <laughs> in air conditioning. Pirate witches, two of my favorite things, sounds amazing. <laughs> yep. So I did just find those. I was like, okay, that's kind of cool. Okay. Covers all the comments for for now. But yes, so yeah, we're looking forward. Uh, the Monty Charleston script is coming together nicely. Yeah, Got to finish one story and then edit, do the final edit. Yep. So that'll be that's going to be good to go sooner than later, and then Beth can throw all of her weight into the witch's script, and then after that we'll see where we go because uh, we we're get Kentucky after that. Oh, oh, that's right. Kentucky Derby. Kentucky Derby time. So hopefully, assuming this Kentucky Derby happening. I don't know. But I that, hope it is. That's when it's traditionally supposed to be that week, so I decided to Kentucky. Um, Cheers. Cheers. And Donnie, uh, him, a few Parkers were taking her trial. Not sure if he's related to um, the Parkers of uh, Salem. Uh-huh. But, I don't know. We're, we probably were going to not, not, nothing against Salem. Of course, it has a very... You know, It'll probably be touched upon, but I don't know if I'm going to dive into those stories. Yeah, because by and large, the Salem witch trials have been completely and thoroughly historically debunked as not actual witchcraft. Yeah. It's, of course, you know, a popular folklore, but um, yeah. So we're, we're, we'll see what happens. We'll probably touch on it because how can you talk about witches in the, in the United States and not at least mention Salem, but as to whether or not we actually dive in and do a deep story on it. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see what, what I find. We've got a month, roughly, give or take a few days. Yeah. Uh, so, with All right, that said, so with that, have a good safe holiday this week. Cheers, everybody. Be safe. I know. I didn't finish my drinks. Okay. <laughs> uh, oh, they'll disappear. Don't, don't, <laughs> no mistake. They will disappear. So, yeah, stay safe. Hope to see you all in a couple of weeks. Um, if you can, come on out, join us on the tour. And uh, if you, even if you can't join us on the tour, feel free to drop us a line anytime. We're always happy to chat with you all. So, how, how come they all sound fun? We try to make them fun. <laughs> this is why I need a big room that's nothing but my library and why I bought a Kindle for the business because I ran out of a shelf for the research room. We kind of have a library. It's just, just scattered across yeah, the house. It's just a different thing. I get it all in one space. We'll get there. Maybe. Maybe not. I make no promises. That'd be a thorough renovation. Yes, it would. All right. With that, we're going to start babbling. <laughs> so we're going to peg off. Mm-hmm. It is. Bye, y'all. Have a good night.
serious guy Now you make the scene all day But tomorrow there'll be hell to pay I mean about future calamity I used to think the idea was obsolete Until I heard the old man dampen his feet Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.